All right, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to see you this morning, and I hope that you have your Bible with you and that you'll open to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And as you're turning there to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, I just want to re- kind of reaffirm how important it is that, that we are together and that we sing things like we, like we have just been singing, that we will sing of the goodness of God. Uh, it's important that we are together to sing about the goodness of God. It's important that when you... Uh, question the goodness of God, when you struggle to feel the goodness of God, when you're in the darkest of nights, um, and you can't, you, maybe you, you can't sing that, it's good to be together with brothers and sisters who can sing it, um, sing it for you, sing it with you, sing it to you, um, that we would remind each other about the goodness of God, uh, even in the darkest of times. In fact, I think last week in 2 Corinthians was super important for us. Uh, We saw some really important, helpful things from God's Word as Paul outlined how we are to live life together when times are hard, like when we encounter afflictions, when trouble comes, how how do we gather together, what should we do to help one another? And we saw four things, basically, from the text last week. Number one, we must share with one another. We must share our burdens with one another, like Paul did. I don't want you to be unaware of my affliction in Asia. Secondly, we must invite others to pray. Uh, You also must help in praying, Paul said. Number three, we must expect help from the Lord because that's where our help comes from, right? When we look at the mountains, when we look to the hills and the overwhelming obstacles in front of us, we say, where does my help come from? And with the psalmist, we say, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And fourthly, we must respond in thanks and praise. Many people, many prayers, many thanks unto the Lord. That was the primary agenda. That was the primary objective. That was the end that Paul was seeking toward, that many people would give thanks to the Lord. Remember, all of this, all of these four things are good for us. It's good for us to be together in our afflictions. It's good for us to walk like this. Ultimately, all of this brings glory to God. Many people, many prayers, many thanks unto the Lord. So track with me here. If it's good for us, if God is glorified in this process, if we are helped in the process, then you can rest assured that Satan will oppose the process, right? Every step of it, he will oppose. He will seek to short-circuit all four of those things. We must share with one another. And Satan will whisper in your ear, you don't need to burden them with that. They don't, they don't need to know about your struggle in Asia. They don't need to... They don't need to be burdened. They've got enough going on. You don't need to add this to your brother's shoulders. The enemy will whisper, if you say that to them, they are going to think you're whiny. They're going to get tired of you. They're not going to want to spend any time with you. He's going to whisper, if you share that with them, they will know who you really are. And they won't want to know you. They won't want to spend time with you. I'm convinced that the enemy will try to keep us from sharing. Because if he can keep us from sharing our afflictions with one another, he can keep us from giving thanks to God as he delivers us. He will also uh, oppose our inviting others to pray. And I believe the enemy will oppose this by uh, trying to convince us that other ways to help are superior to praying. I believe the enemy will try to convince you that bringing a meal is better than praying to keep you from praying. And so I, I wonder if, if maybe our exchange should go something like this. Like when we know somebody's in need, we say, hey, let us know what we can do. And if you're on the receiving end of a statement like that, you say, deal, you can pray. I will let you know what you can do. You can pray. 
and the person on the other end needs to say, awesome, let's pray. And let's do it like right then. I think that will confront the enemy in his attempts to bypass this process. The enemy will try to keep you from praying. Thirdly, we must expect help from the Lord. And the enemy will try to keep you from expecting the Lord's help by expecting only certain kinds of help from the Lord. In other words, the enemy is behind this, uh, oh, you've asked for A kind of help and he's given you B kind of help. Well, that's not, that's not really help from the Lord. Or, oh, you, you asked for help today and he delivered you tomorrow. That's not really help from the Lord. The enemy, I think, is behind us expecting only certain kinds of help from the Lord and not just trusting him to deliver us as he sees fit. Sometimes he gets us to focus on the alleviation of our affliction and not the praise that is to belong to the Lord and the help that we give to one another. In other words, Satan opposes the goal of being glory to God by teaching us to focus only on deliverance that we receive. The enemy is behind keeping us from expecting help from the Lord and he will also try to keep us from giving thanks to the Lord. How does he do that? Well, he convinces us that when deliverance comes, it comes from medicine or technology or mere coincidence. And we chalk it up to some natural occurrence. We explain it away naturally. Or he convinces us to rejoice only in the gift and not in the giver. Maybe we illustrate that with a little kid. A little kid who asked for a certain toy for Christmas and begged for it for months and months and months. And then on Christmas Day receives that toy as a gift from his or her parents. And when he receives the gift, he takes the gift and runs off to his room and shuts the door and they don't see him for the rest of the day. If you receive a gift that you've asked for, what should you do? Immediately in response to that, you should set that toy down. And go to the person who gave it to you and tell them how great they are for giving it to you, right? But Satan will try to keep us from that. He'll say, you got what you wanted, now go enjoy it. He will short-circuit this process by ingratitude. We will receive deliverance from the Lord and then just move on to the next problem. Move on on to the next area in which we need deliverance. Here's Here's my point. Satan will oppose all of this. All of this that Paul outlined in the text last week, Satan will oppose it because it's good for us and it brings glory to God. He hates us and he hates God and so he will try to disrupt this whole process. And he does a pretty good job of it. And all of this, all of this thinking through made me think of James chapter 4 verse 7 that teaches us to submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and his schemes against you And he will flee from you, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's what we want to do, right? Draw near to God, he draws near to us, we resist the devil, he flees from us. That's the way we want to live as we face affliction together. Well, this week we're going to launch into the body of the letter. What we've done for the last two months is only introduction. Can you believe that? Today we dive into the body of the letter, and it's probably wise for us as we do that to reflect for a minute on the occasion of Paul's writing here. Why did Paul write 2 Corinthians? Well, we need to remember his ministry to the people in Corinth. How did we get here? Well, Paul planted the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. And you remember, he went there, he preached the gospel, and he stayed for a year and a half, 18 months, he stayed in Corinth. And then he left, he left Corinth to go on spreading the gospel around the known world. 
And while he was gone, he exchanged some letters with Corinth. I believe they wrote him a letter asking some questions, and he wrote them back answering those questions. Now, we don't have either of those two letters, but we do see references to them. And then, after that exchange, he wrote what we have as 1 Corinthians. And after he wrote 1 Corinthians, he sent Timothy to visit the church in Corinth on his behalf. And when Timothy came back from Corinth, he reported to Paul, big problems. Timothy saw what was going on in the church, and he said, oh, it's a mess. There's some big stuff going wrong, and it's not getting much better. And so Paul returned for a visit. And when he returned for a visit, something bad happened. Something really bad happened, and he left abruptly. He left wounded, in fact. Some scholars would say maybe physically wounded. Maybe they attacked him in some way. But definitely he was emotionally wounded, spiritually wounded, and he left. Scholars refer to that visit as the painful visit. The painful visit. And then... After that painful visit, he sent Titus, his other protege in the faith, to see them. And Titus, when he came to town, was carrying a letter. A letter that we don't have a record of. Uh, we, don't, we don't have the letter. We just have references to it. Scholars refer to it as the severe letter. Paul says he wrote that letter with anguish in his heart and with many tears. And he knows that that letter made them sorrowful, but it produced some good things. That painful letter, that severe letter, produced some good things. It produced repentance and understanding and resolution and restoration. At least in part, the severe letter produced some restoration. And now, here we are, he's writing 2 Corinthians to see that restoration that started with the severe letter seen all the way through. He's writing 2 Corinthians to smooth out the rough edges that remain after that painful visit and the severe letter. He's writing 2 Corinthians to bring that restoration to its completion. So, in the first section of the body of 2 Corinthians, which extends really from where we are today all the way through chapter 7, he's going to seek to resolve the remaining tensions with the people there. And part of that will require Paul to play some defense. And he's going to start playing defense generally in our text today. He'll get more specific in defense next week in verse 15. But today we're going to look at verses 12 to 14 and Paul's general defense of his integrity. His integrity that's being attacked by false teachers, the so-called super apostles. They're saying, you can't trust that guy. He's not what he seems to be. He's telling you one thing, but doing another, you can't trust him. Paul's going to say, no, you can't. And you should. And his goal is that they will. That they will truly trust him. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. We'll get through verse 14 today. This is God's word. It says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, help us to conduct ourselves in the world and with each other in a way that honors you and in a way that fits with our profession of faith. Help us to live with holiness and godly sincerity so that our consciences are clear. Help us to resist the allure of fleshly wisdom 
and instead operate by your grace. We ask that you would grant us growth in our understanding of your word, growth in our obedience to your word, grant us growth in our witness to those around us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at these three verses today, I think the best way to approach it is to start at the end and work our way to the beginning. So we're going to start in verse 14, actually at the very end of verse 14, and kind of work our way backwards through the text today. Hopefully, we will be able to see first where Paul is trying to get to. Like, what is his goal with these people? And then we'll try to see how he wants to get there. In other words, what is his plan? So we'll look first at his goal and then at his plan. And the goal is stated at the end of verse 14. Look at it in the text. That we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Paul sees the church at Corinth, along with other believers all over the Mediterranean, as a reason for his boasting. Right? Some of your translations say it that, that way, right? That, that we would be your reason to boast just as you are our reason to boast. That idea of proud confidence is the idea of boasting. So let's clarify what Paul means by boasting here. Since it's a word that is almost used exclusively in the negative in our context today. Paul uses the word boast a lot. In fact, of all the New Testament writers, he uses it the most. 36 times in Paul's letters, 36 times in Paul's letters, 37 times in the entire New Testament. So only one time outside of Paul's writing is this word used. And 20 times it's found in 2 Corinthians alone. So the idea of boasting, the idea of being proud, the idea of articulating that pride is something that Paul's going to talk about a lot in 2 Corinthians. So this is a general thing that he's going to tease out more later. It's the same, it's the same concept that we see at the beginning in verse 12, the beginning of our text today in verse 12 when he says, for our proud confidence is this. Some of your translations rightly say, for our boast is this. It's a concept that Paul talks about a lot. Colin Cruz says this, For his part, Paul will feel pride in his converts because they are the seal of his apostleship, a proof that he has faithfully carried out his commission as apostle to the Gentiles. Paul never endorses boasting in human achievement. Paul never endorses boasting in our talents or our performance. When he talks about boasting, he is talking about boasting in what the Lord has done. For Paul, when boasting is focused rightly, when pride is focused rightly, it's a way to bring glory to God. And that's what he says here of the Corinthians. These believers in Corinth are the fruit of Paul's ministry. They are evidence of the work of God in Paul's life. And so that's why he boasts over them, because he sees them as the work that God has done through his life. And then he says, on the day of our Lord Jesus... In other words, when Jesus comes in glory, Paul says, I'm going to boast over the Corinthians, over you Corinthians. And he hopes that they will also boast in him. He hopes that they will come to see him as an instrument used by God to bring about their conversion, to bring about their growth in Christ-likeness, to bring about their life together as the family of God. Paul hopes that they will recognize and appreciate him as a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He hopes that they will know that he sought their good in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they, the Corinthians, will boast over him even as he boasts over them. All 
to the glory of God, right? That's where Paul is trying to get to, but he's a long way from there right now, especially with these remaining holdouts who are questioning his character. There are still some in Corinth who are questioning his his character, his authority, his integrity, even his apostleship. So how will they get to this place where not only he boasts in them, but they boast in him at the day of the Lord Jesus? How will we get there? Well, working backwards in the text, you will see that Paul encourages them to grow in their understanding. Look at verse 13 and 14. For we write nothing else to you other than what you read and understand. And I hope that you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us. That word for understand here has its, at its root a word that means experiential knowing through direct relationship. Experiential knowing through direct relationship, not secondhand affirmation, but experiential knowing through direct relationship. So what does he want them to know like that? What does Paul want them to understand? Well, it's clear from all of his writings that he wants them to understand the message that he's preaching to them. He wants them to understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he got to in 1 Corinthians, right? When he wrote to them about what's most important, what did he say was most important? Well, look at it in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. Right, This good news that I preached to you when I came to see you the very first time, which you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Friends, that's the good news that he wants them to understand. That's the message that he wants them to grow in their understanding of. He wants them to grow in their knowledge of the gospel. He wants them to grow in their knowledge of the message, but he also wants them to grow in the knowledge in their knowledge of the messenger. Paul has already spent 18 months with these people. That's unusual. When we talk about Paul's missionary journeys, his missionary work, he doesn't stay in one place for super long. But he stays in Corinth for 18 months, living among them, working among them, engaging them on a number of levels. He wants them to know him well. He's also sent representatives who speak on his behalf a couple of times. He's written them letters. He wants them to know him more. But in this letter, in 2 Corinthians in particular, he's going to share much more of himself with them, especially as he talks about his sufferings and his afflictions. And we've already gotten a taste of that in chapter 1, right? In the very introduction of the letter, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. He speaks very personally about his deep suffering that he experienced in Asia. He wants them to grow in their understanding of the message he preaches, and he wants them to grow in their understanding of him as the messenger so that on the day of the Lord Jesus, he will boast in them, and they will boast in him because of his message and because of his character. And in order to get to that place of mutual boasting in the day of the Lord, Paul wants to see the Corinthians grow in their understanding of the gospel and their relationship with him. He recognizes in the text that they have some knowledge, right? Look at verse 14. Just as you also partially did understand us. They're not unfamiliar with the message, and they're not unfamiliar with the messenger, 
but he wants them to become more familiar with both the message and the messenger. In other words, Paul says, you, you know me and you know my message, but I want you to fully understand this. ESV does a better job of New American Standard in capturing this sense. New American Standard says, I hope you will understand until the end. ESV says, I hope you will fully understand. And notice that Paul affirms that in his letters that he has written, not just to Corinth, but to other churches, in his letters, he has given them sufficient resources to have this full understanding. Look at verse 13. For we write nothing else to you other than what you read and understand. In other words, Paul says, I'm not hiding anything from you. I'm not hiding anything from you in what I have written to you. What you see is what you get. In other words, what you see is what you get about the gospel, about the gospel, the message, which perhaps some of the false teachers are claiming he's holding out on them. Probably some of these so-called super apostles are saying, oh, Paul's not telling you the whole story. Let me tell you the whole story. Oh, oh, Paul's not telling you everything you need to know. Let me tell you what you really need to know. Let me impart to, you, impart to you this secret knowledge so that you can really live a full Christian life. Isn't that just like the devil? To, to try to convince you that you're not getting the whole story? To try to convince you that there's more to it than what you've been told? Isn't that the way he started back in Genesis chapter 3? Look at Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and, and evil. Isn't it, isn't it just like the devil from the beginning to say, oh, he's holding out on you. Oh, he's not telling you the whole story. Oh, there's more to it than you have heard. Paul says, no, 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 there's not more to it. I've told you the truth. In my letters, I've told you the truth about the gospel, about the message. And he's also affirming here in my letters and in my visits, I've told you the truth about myself. He claims that he is consistent in his ministry, in his message. He's consistent in his character when he's writing to them or whether he's visiting them. We know this is a problem in Corinth because he addresses it directly in chapter 10. In chapter 10, he says, for they say, that is the so-called super apostles, the false teachers, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, Paul says. That what we are in word by letters when absence, when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Paul says, no, I'm not, I'm not one way when I'm away and a different way when I'm with you. He says, I'm consistent. I'm consistent in the message I've been preaching. I'm consistent in my character with you. And so you are my boast and I should be your boast in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let these guys come in and cause disruption like this. Gary Miller puts these words in Paul's mouth when it comes to me. What you see is what you get. That's what Paul says to them. When it comes to me, what you see is what you get. And I think there is a lot for us to learn from Paul's call for them to grow. Paul's call for them to grow in their understanding of the message and the messenger. As we prepare for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be pursuing growth in our understanding of the gospel, in our relationships with one another, so that when that day comes, we can rejoice and celebrate the work of God in our lives, 
the work of God in each other's lives so that we can boast before the Lord of the great things he has done. So maybe part of what we want to consider today is what what are we doing to pursue such growth? That we have partial understanding now, but we want to have full understanding, right? And, And probably that full understanding isn't going to come until that great day of the Lord. But what are we doing to pursue growth in the meantime? Or are we content to have partial understanding, pass the test, get through, and never grow? This is a call for growth. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to grow. And as we move backward in the text, in verse 12, Paul appeals to his conscience in defense of his ministry to the Corinthians. Look at verse 12. This is so weird. He says, For our proud confidence or our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Now, it's important to note that although we are dealing with this last today, Paul mentions it first. It's the very first thing Paul goes to in seeking harmony with these people. He appeals to his own conscience. That's so strange of us, right? Strange to us. Christian Standard translates it plainly like this. Indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by the grace of God. Our conscience is clear before you, he says. So what is our conscience? How should we understand our conscience? Christopher Ashe says that the conscience is this highly sensitive but slightly unreliable instrument that convicts us of the gap between what the Bible says and how we're actually living. Highly sensitive, but slightly unreliable. Shows us the gap between what the Bible says and how we live. This is actually what Ash says. Conscience detects where our lives don't match with what we say we believe. And even though our conscience is easily desensitized and hardened, when we become Christians, the Spirit instantly begins to repair our damaged conscience with the result that it is actually possible for us to have a clear conscience in specific situations and on specific issues. And that's what Paul is saying. If we examine ourselves honestly before God in the light of his word, it is possible to speak with quiet confidence and real humility about our actions, which is what Paul does. That we've behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely toward you. For Paul, this idea of having a clear conscience is super important. Super important for leadership, super important for authority. He talks about it all the time. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Timothy chapter 3, he talks about leaders of the church must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. In Acts chapter 23, he says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. In Acts 24 verse 16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience both toward God and toward man. And then in Romans chapter 9, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Somehow, for Paul, the idea of his conscience, super important. But he recognizes that it's not perfect. It's not infallible. It's not ultimate. 
Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So for Paul, the conscience is super important. It's very helpful as a guide for his living, but he knows it's not ultimate and it's not infallible. And nonetheless, he says to the Corinthians, I'm hearing all these charges brought by the super apostles about my integrity and my character, my ministry and my message. And my conscience is clear. My conscience is clear before the Lord that I have acted before you and before the whole world in godly sincerity, in the grace of God and not in the ways of the world. Paul has heard these charges. He's felt the heartache as many of his brothers and sisters Many of his sons and daughters in the faith believed those charges from the false teachers and he declares to them that his conscience is clear in the matters. And he invites them to reflect on his time with them so that they will agree with his conscience. His time with them that was not short. He says, I in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Paul says, unlike others, who are peddling the word of God for profit, unlike others who are manipulating people with fancy speech, Paul operated with integrity. Paul operated with godliness. Paul operated in the grace of God. The expository commentary said, where human ingenuities and self-generated strategies end, grace begins. The two are mutually exclusive. That's, That's really instructive for ministry. Like you can base your ministry, you can base your work in the Lord on human ingenuity, on self-generated strategy, and you can get what you can produce. You get what man can produce. Or you can base your ministry on the grace of God and receive what only he can give. Which would you prefer? Paul obviously preferred to receive what only God can give. So he relied on the ordinary means of grace. He relied on the simple declaration of God's word. He relied on the power of the spirit, not on strategies and programs and ideas and manipulations. He relied on the message of the gospel and the power of the spirit. And God did incredible things among the Corinthians. Why are the Corinthians believers? Because Paul came in with smoke and mirrors and flashy things. No, they are believers Because of the grace of God. Because Paul simply stood up and declared the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Spirit of God changed them forever and ever. Paul relied on the ordinary means of grace. And God did incredible things through him. Not for Paul's glory, but for God's glory. So Paul's boasting is not in his own work, but it's in God's work through him. So Paul appealed to his own conscience saying, when I reflect on this, my conscience is clear. Can you do that with your life? Can you do that with your work in the church, in the world? And say, as I reflect on these things, my conscience is clear. There's no need for repentance. There's no need for confession. 
because I operated in godly sincerity, in holiness, and in the grace of God before you. Now, as we move to like practical application, from this text, it's hard. Paul is speaking about bringing full restoration between him and the church. So how do we apply principles from this text? Well, Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian in history, applied these words by preaching them in his last sermon to the church that he served. Jonathan Edwards preached these words to a church that he had served for 23 years after they fired him by a vote of 90% to 10 You don't want to be that church, just historically, by the way. You don't want to be the church that fires Jonathan Edwards by a vote like that. But Edwards, after he got fired like that, preached this text to them, essentially saying, with Paul's words, my conscience is clear. I operated with sincerity. I operated with humility and holiness. I operated in the grace of God. I hope that you will grow in your understanding of the message of the gospel. I hope that you will grow in your understanding of me as the messenger. And I hope that when the day of the Lord Jesus comes, Edward says this to his church, they just fired him. I hope that when the day of the Lord Jesus comes, I will boast in you and you will boast in me. Well, that'd be one way to apply the text, right? But I'm no Jonathan Edwards. I hope. In a lot of ways. But I do think there are four things that we need to draw our attention to. Number one, the day of the Lord Jesus is coming, right? He's kind of rooting all this in the expectation that there is the day of the Lord Jesus that is coming. And when that day comes, he's going to boast in the Corinthians. And when that day comes, he hopes that they will boast in him. And he's writing this letter to see that that would take place. But we need to observe that the day of the Lord is coming. This day of judgment is coming. And the only escape, the only deliverance on that day is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We agree with that? The only deliverance is through Jesus Christ. When the day of judgment comes, if we are not in Christ, we are in trouble. Because God is holy, we are sinful, and we deserve judgment for our sin. But the holy God has made a way for the sinful man to be reconciled to himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, who took our sins as if they were his own. Jesus, the Son of God, who died in our place. Jesus, the Son of God, who rose again victorious over sin and death and hell. Jesus, the Son of God, who will save you from your sins as a gift. A gift that you receive through faith, by trusting in him by turning away from your sins and trusting in his perfect work on your behalf. The day of the Lord Jesus is coming. The judgment is coming. And the only escape is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So repent and believe today. And if you're already a believer, if you're already already a Christian, there should be a certain urgency in your living. Right? There should be a certain, even, even though your salvation is secure and certain, there should be a certain sense of urgency in your living. You don't want things to be undone. You don't want things to be left undone. You want to live with a certain amount of urgency. Paul says, on the day of the Lord Jesus, I will boast in you, and I hope that you will boast in me as well. Live with urgency, because the day of the Lord Jesus is coming. Secondly, I would ask, is your conscience clear? Let's, let's, let's think about that for a second. 
Is your conscience clear? Could you even come close to saying what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1? My conscience is clear. I live, I've lived in holiness, godly sincerity. I've operated by the grace of God, not just with you, especially with you, but in, in the world in general. This is how I've operated. Is your conscience clear? Or is it constantly burdening you? Do you need to repent? Do you need to confess your sin? I will tell you this. If your conscience is burdening you, the more you allow that to go on, the less it will burden you. And the more you'll be driven away from the Lord. The more you ignore that unrest within, the quieter it'll get and the further you'll walk away from the Lord. So if your conscience is condemning you today, you need to deal with that. And probably it needs to be in the form of repentance. And maybe it's that your conscience needs to be more conformed to the word of God, but it's probably that you need to repent. How's your conscience today? Maybe that's what I'll say. Is it sensitive? Hardened? Is it provoked? Is it unsettled? Or is it clear? It can be clear. How's your conscience? Number three, are you growing? Are you growing in your understanding of the gospel? Are you growing in theology? Are you growing in relationships? What are you doing to pursue that growth? You know, Paul, Paul says, I, I want us to be together, and I want you to grow in your understanding. You understand in part, but I want you to grow so that you fully understand. What are you going to do to fully understand? What are you going to do to grow in your understanding? I hope that you'll be involved in personal spiritual disciplines, that you'll be reading the word, hearing the word, memorizing the word, Hope that you'll be praying. I hope that you'll be involved in the life of the church so that we can know one another well, so that we'll boast of one another for the sake of God's glory when the day comes. Are you growing in your understanding and what are you doing to pursue that growth? And then the last thing I, I want to ask if you're boasting in the Lord. You know what boasting in the Lord looks like? It looks like worship, right? It looks like worship as we gather together and we raise our voices to boast in what the Lord has done and who he is and what he has done. That's what boasting in the Lord looks like. You know what else, else it looks like? It looks like proclamation. It looks like proclamation as we go out and we talk to our neighbors, we talk to our friends, we talk to our family and coworkers. We go to the ends of the earth to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The Lord is great. Come, behold the Lord. That's what it looks like to boast in the Lord. Are you doing that? Are you doing that in worship? Are you doing that in proclamation? Paul couldn't help it, right? Seems like he went around the whole world boasting in the Lord. He got the churches together, he boasted in the Lord. Let's be folks who boast in the Lord. Let's stand together and pray. God, help us to be people who live with a sense of urgency, knowing that the day of the Lord is coming. 
Lord, help us to be people who live with clear conscience. Who live in holiness and godly sincerity. Who operate in your grace and not in worldly wisdom. Lord, help us to be people who are quick to repent. Lord, help us to be people who are growing in our understanding of your truth. Help us to be people who are growing in our relationships with one another in the church. Lord, help us to be people who are boasting in you, in worship, in proclamation, that we would constantly be talking about how great you are, how amazing you are, how worthy you are. That we would say it to you in praise. We would say it to our neighbors as witness, testimony unto you. God, we recognize that there are some among us who are not ready for the day of judgment that is coming. They are still in their sins. They are still apart from Christ. We know that only you can change that. So we ask that you would, that you would open people's eyes to your holiness, open their eyes to their own sinfulness. Oh Lord, turn their eyes to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let them see Jesus dying in their place. And we ask that you would grant them faith to trust in the work of Christ, that you would grant them repentance to turn away from sins and that you would save them by your grace and all for your glory forever and ever, that you would make them worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name.